I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Saturday, March 6th, 2021, and this is episode 110 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. This week's best thing is Coming to America, the sequel to the original Coming to America, uh, that came out last night, apparently came out a day early, but we watched it yesterday on Amazon Prime, and it was delightful. Like, from a story script perspective, it wasn't perfect by any means, but it was so entertaining, and it had so many callbacks to the original, and it had so much Black culture in it, and it was just so much Black excellence in it, <laughs> and I just, I adored it. It was, it wasn't quite as funny as the first one. And I understand that because it's hard to make a comedy these days. Like, you know, we rewatched the original movie be- right before. So we did it back to back and it was like, oh, can't do that today. Can't do that today. So, um, I, I really feel for comedians, comedy writers, people who are trying to be funny in this day and age. One thing. So if you're familiar with Coming to America, you've got the Vanessa Bell Calloway character in the original who was supposed to, to marry Prince Akeem. And there's the thing scene with her barking like a dog because she'd been trained her whole life to do whatever he wanted, to like whatever he wanted. And he was not interested in that. He wanted a woman with her own mind, which was the whole starting off point of the film. And, you know, she has a cameo in the new one. But part of me was like, you know, I want a movie about Imani. I think, that's her, I think that's her character's name. And like, so after you know, the man that she was raised from birth to serve her whole life, marry someone else. What is her life like? I was dissatisfied with how they they addressed it in this one. I mean, it was funny. It was a callback. But like, for real, like, I want something exploring, okay, how does she break out of that and find her, her like, her truth and her, her life, you know, make a life for herself? Like, that's a story that I would want to tell. And people always ask where stories come from, you know, so something like that, like I'll watch something and be like, what is her life like? And then, like I said before, I, I've never gotten into fan fiction. I didn't even know fan fiction was a thing until I was probably 30. But um, a lot of stories kind of do start with what, you know, what you would maybe otherwise call fan fiction. So take this character. Um, she wasn't exactly a princess. Let's call her a princess who has been raised, you know, for one purpose and and has her hopes dashed and then has to claw herself back into her own identity and find love and happiness. You know, that could be a great story. Uh, I don't know if I'll write that story, but maybe, you know, who knows? It'll be the spark. Because I was thinking like a lot about the women in the film and uh, the, you know, in the new one, Eddie Murphy's character has three daughters and you you see them, but you don't really one of the flaws of the film is you don't get to know a lot about any of them. The oldest one kind of, but not really, because it's really other people's stories. And she's a fascinating character, the oldest daughter. And it's like, hmm, like, I wish I wish it had been, you know, I, I enjoyed the movie that it was. And I, I really, I really did like it a lot. But there's just so much in there that you could, you know, have spinoffs or have um, other stories or a different version of this movie could have focused on something different. That is just, that was going through my mind as I was watching. An honorable mention goes to the WandaVision series finale, which which aired last night also. And I originally was not really into WandaVision. The first few episodes, I was like, okay. 
And then I think episode four is when sort of it dropped and you understood what, kind of what was happening, or you started to understand. And it still wasn't my favorite thing. But I think every episode got a little bit better. And I did love how they really caught the satire, I guess, of those eras of television. Uh, that was like really brilliantly done. And then as it got to the end and it got more emotional and more just real and it, it became something really interesting and different. And I, I applaud them for doing something like that. You know, that's difficult. And ultimately, I'm glad I, I stuck with it and watched the whole thing. And I do recommend it uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, because um, one of my friends texted and was like, are you watching WandaVision? I heard it's about grief. She was worried about watching it. And I'm like, it is about grief, but it's not like, and I did cry a couple of times. I was but it's not like it's going to bring you down. It's not like it's wallowing in this. It's about grief in a subtle way that they work through all nine episodes and um, and actually have something interesting and powerful to say about it while not being a downer. Because I think we all have to sort of protect ourselves from things that are going to, at least I know I do and I know my friends, some of my friends do, or kind of when we recommend things to each other, we have be- we. Over the years, we know each other's kind of things. Like, so, no, you don't want to watch that because X, Y, and Z. And you don't want to read that one because, you know, this, this, and that. So we're trying to take care of each other. And uh, watching something about just someone being depressed and grieving is not, doesn't sound like a good time to me. Uh, and that's why this, I still recommend The Wand Division because it does deal with with grief and loss and depression in a unique way that... Um, it is artistic, but, you know, not like self-consciously so. But it's still a good story and it's just well done and, and worth watching. So those are the best things for this week. My writing update. I am at 64,319 words. I did realize that I think I'm going to fall short of my goal. I, th- I don't know yet. I've got, um, so I'm on chapter 22, no, 23. I started 23. And right now there's 27 chapters in the book. And I don't think I'll add any more, but we'll see. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, I really wanted this book to be 80, 85. And then I cut all those chapters and I was like, 75? Honestly, I can't remember what I said. And I know it said on the podcast. <laughs> I'm not going to rewind and listen, but now I'm thinking closer to 70. But I know I need to add words in the revision because I feel like something is missing. Something thematic, um, a thread, a subplot, something is missing. And I'm going to continue to the end, obviously. And um, I have to have someone else, an editor, tell me what is missing. Uh, Because I reread the whole thing, like we talked about last week. And I don't know. So I, the end of the books are hard. I need to like write down a reminder to myself to schedule more time for the last third. You know, when I do my schedules, just realize that the last third is just going to fall apart. You are going to question everything and it's just going to take more time because, you know, as much plotting as I do, the end is always up for grabs, you know, because I know that even with the plotting, things are going to change along the way and that's going to affect the end. So I come into the end knowing that I need to be open to possibilities of things changing, of me finding new ways to do things or whatever, anything could happen at the end. And I still know where I'm going. And I think all of that is, the bones are still the same. The fast drafts at the end are just 
very thin. They're very, very short. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time fast drafting, even, even less, even less time than a normal fast draft for the, the last third, I guess, because I do know it's, it's going to change. So I'm in that point now where I actually am just starting to pants a little bit. Like I had an idea and I'm just going to run with it. And maybe it's, maybe it's, um, paying off things that I've planted. Like a part of it is that, and maybe it's something trying to access my subconscious to figure out what that thing is that I sense that I'm missing, that I don't know exactly what it is yet. So yeah, I started chapter 23. I'm kind of just a little ways in. And, uh, so the last six, seven, five chapters, trying to get them done in the next week, which I should just give myself two weeks because that's, there's no need to rush. You know, I'm still not under a deadline other than my own deadline. Um, but I do want to get it done and off my plate and just let it sit, see what happens. Uh, I have other things that I need to be working on. And yeah, so the end is always a little bit tough. And I guess I have been struggling for several weeks on this last third of the book. So including that time in my plan up front would probably be very wise. And I will have to try to remember to do that. In reading news, I have been binging a bunch of Beverly Jenkins novels. Um, one of my friends was reading the most recent one, Wild Rain, and I started there and then I sort of worked backwards in that series or that those connected novels because sometimes she writes series, but a lot of times Beverly Jenkins just writes connected characters and they're not technically in a series from what I can see. But, you know, you see this person and you find their book and you see this person, oh, no, did she write a book about them? So a lot of it was me just hunting around and, um, you know, these are books that I hadn't read before because I've read some like Beverly Jenkins before, but she has so many books. And yeah, in the past week, I read like six or seven of them <laughs> that I hadn't read before. And then I saw a tweet by Robin Bradford about series. And it's interesting when you binge an author like that. Um, and these are books from recently all the way back to like 2000 or earlier. I don't know. I was just reading a bunch of different things. You start to see their kind of ticks and you see reused ideas or thoughts or phrases or words, descriptions. And it's really interesting. Um, so this, this tweet, uh, thread by Robin Bradford, who is a librarian. Shout out to Robin. I'll call her a friend of the podcast. <laughs> Although I don't know if she listens, but, um, she said that I always warn people doing catch up on a series to remember that the books they're reading were originally written with space in between. So yes, it feels like you're reading that same description of the characters for the millionth time, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. And that's true for series and also just when you're binging an author in general. Because like I said, I know I'm sure I have things that I repeat and I try to think like, oh, I'm using, you know, this term or this word too much, but for everything I think of, I'm sure there's a bunch more that I don't, and that someone binging through my series will notice and might annoy them in the way that things do. Because there are, I, I have this experience, there are series that I have binged, and I've been like, oh, wow, she says that a lot. Like, And since they're written a year or, or more apart, you know, um, it's, the author can't catch it. Copy editors probably can't catch it unless they are doing a series reread, like, it would be wonderful if every time you release a new book in the series, your copy editor or some person would read everything and do continuity and recognize these sort of ticks that come up, these repetitions or patterns that authors have. 
Sometimes authors do it on purpose, though. There is a series that I love that is an auto-buy for me. And every book is meant to be a standalone, even though it's a series. So she explains the same thing over and over again in each book. And I have to skim it each time. And it is incredibly irritating. But I know why she's doing it. I'll just go ahead and say it. It's Diane Duvall's uh, Immortal Guardian series, which, like I said, I love. I actually reread all of them, except for like one or two, a month or two ago. Because a new book had come out in the spinoff series. And I was like, oh, I, I really love these characters. And I reread them. And it doesn't take that long because I have to skim like a fourth of it because it's the same descriptions. And it feels like she copies and pastes them. I don't know. But I'm sure it's helpful if you enter the series on book 12. But who does that? Like, who are these chaos monsters who start a book, on, start a series on book 12? I'm sure they exist. And then, you know, a year between them, maybe we've forgotten. I understand. It's on purpose. And that is how she's chosen to approach her series. And it doesn't stop me from buying each book when it comes out immediately or pre-ordering them. But it is something that, you know, and then I, I retweeted her, uh, Robin's tweet, saying that, you know, I think about that. I assume that most of the people who read Earth Center Chronicles will be in the future, you know, will binge the whole thing. The people who get past the first book, you know, um, the books will be out for a very long time. They'll be available. So it stands to reason that the majority of my readers will be in the future. And I thought that ever since I first started, when I, even when I was self-published. So I don't do a lot of recapping. I don't think you know, there was a review at South Book 3 that was like, oh, it's too much recapping. And maybe, like, I try not to do too much, and I try to make it interesting. Some of it's just to remind myself, <laughs> you know. Um, and sometimes I don't binge things, you know, even when a series is done, I will read it, and then I will take time and space in between books. Like, um, with N.K. Jemison's books, the uh, Broken Earth trilogy, I still haven't read the third one. Because I need a lot of space between those books just to reset my brain and, and rest. Some books are, are I'm going to say draining, but they are, they, they require a lot of you. And so I can't binge a series like that. There's TV shows like that that require a lot of you and binging them too much. You feel like, oh no, I need a break. I can't, I can only do two episodes a night of this show. So uh, I think she was talking about something different and I maybe, you know, took it in a different direction than her original tweet. But I do wonder if other authors think about that. Like, I struggled uh, with, you know, how much recap should I do that thing? Like Anna Geary in her Ars Numina series, she does an actual recap in the beginning that you can skip if you want. But it's like, this. here's what's happened. It's like last season on <laughs> the show. And I, I considered doing that for Earth Center Chronicles at one point. I considered, I think Maggie Stiefvater does recaps on her website. Somebody did a cartoon recap of a series. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to do it. And I did think about them. And then I didn't do any of them. <laughs> uh, but I did try to make the books, if you read the first one, well, the you know, books one and two, a first singer at least, are parallel stories. So you can read them in either order. Book three was really where I had this challenge because I'm bringing back characters from both. And then there's new characters um, there's people that you met in the novella, if you read the novella, and people might not have. A lot of things to juggle. And so, yeah, I did the best that I could. I made some choices. Maybe in the future series, I will do the Anagiri method and just do, like, an optional reading recap at the beginning. Um, although, 
and I, that's another auto buy series for me. I, I don't know that the, that salary cap helps as much because it's like if I've, I do start to remember what happened, but something feels very detached about that. You know, like I appreciate, appreciate that it's there. Um, but maybe one of the reasons why I didn't go that route was just because when I, the few instances that I can't think of any other authors right now who do that, but I, I know that someone does. It's helpful, but it's sort of um, clinical, you know, because it's just the, the facts without, I mean, you're not reading the whole book again, so you're not going through the emotions. And that for me might be a little bit of a, a stopping place. You know, there's no, obviously there's no right way to do it. And sometimes you're just going to have to suck it up and, and put the repetition in the books and, and hope the readers are generous and will understand why you've done it. And, um, and yeah, I mean, obviously they do. So one of the many things to think about, there was a conversation that I saw on Twitter about whether hashtag own voices is over, should be over, um, has been abused, misused. Um, so if you're not familiar, own voices is a hashtag. I don't know who originally created it, uh, but it started out as just a hashtag saying that in publishing, people who have lived experiences should tell their own stories. So if we want more diversity, you know, diversity in publishing became hot, a hot button topic five, six years ago, I guess, maybe more. Uh, and at first it was like, oh, well, we'll use the authors that we already have, majority white authors, to write more quote unquote diverse characters. So um, people of color, people with different marginalizations. And then people were like, no, no, that's not, that's not quite what we meant. Like, yes, it's wonderful. White person, write your black characters, but why don't we get black authors to write black characters and disabled authors to write disabled characters and queer authors and et cetera, et cetera. So own voices is like, I am, have the lived experience of my characters and generally the main characters. And then all very well intentioned. And I think, you know, was very much needed. Uh, but then it became publishing is like, oh, well, own voices and let's, this is what we want. This is the thing. We're looking for own voices. And if you, if you look and see, there's way more own voices now. There's way more of everybody writing and publishing their books than there were five years ago. And that's so amazing. But the downside is that it can be used as sort of an authenticity test. Like, oh, you're writing a character that has a chronic illness. Do you have a chronic illness? You know, tell me all about all of your personal medical information or your sexuality that you may or may not be ready to make public. And that another instance of this happened. The first instance I saw was Becky Albertalli, who, uh, you know, she writes a lot of, I think she writes YA and a lot of queer characters. She had the Love, Simon movie and the TV show. And, you know, she's extremely uh, successful and popular. And I believe someone came at her and like, why are you always writing these queer characters? You are married to a man. You have children. You are apparently straight. And it sort of seemed like they, these questions rose up and forced her out of the closet to admit that she was, I don't know if that's the right term. I don't know if she was in the closet. Uh, I did read her post about it. I, I guess I should say it forced her to come out as bi. And that wasn't something that maybe she was necessarily ready or, you know, would have done otherwise in the public eye. And a similar thing happened to um, another author, Rod Polito, who wrote a blog post. He is Filipino. He is married to a woman for 20 years. And he was shopping a book that was about 
a, a young queer character. And apparently, you know, I'll, I'll link to the blog post to, you know, read his own words, but an ed- editor was very excited about it until she found out that he identified as straight and had been married for 20 years to a woman. And then it was like, oh, and I, I don't think we can publish it. this. It's not on Voices. And so on the one hand, you do get people saying, do you have the right to tell the story? Like, who are you? Um, we're, we're trying to protect the voices of people who haven't had a voice before. So that's what Own Voices is about. And on the other hand, it's become, or it, in some cases, who, let me tell me all about how you are Own Voices. Tell me all about every aspect of your identity that gives you permission to tell the story. And it is, um, it's lamentable, but it's kind of the, the way it always would have been. You can't at the same time say, you're not allowed to tell the story because you're not the right race or culture or background or sexual um, identity, and not expect someone to have to then prove that they are, whether or not that's fair. You know, these, these issues of identity are so fraught, and this own voices issue is fraught because it is well-intentioned, and, and I think people are trying to remind the people who are criticizing it now that of why it came to be and why it was important. But you can't require this sort of, and I'm going to use the word authenticity for lack of a better one, but this racial or whatever identity authenticity on the one hand, and then denigrate it on the other hand, when it forces people to um, publicly claim identities that they might not be ready to. And, you know, no one should be forced either out of the closet or forced to come out for business reasons, you know? Usually when people do that, it's shady. It's like, um, wasn't it Kevin Spacey who was like, oh, as a gay man, I've been persecuted and I, I couldn't possibly have persecuted others or something, you know, tried to make it a point of why he should, you know, why we should feel sympathy for him when he was accused of doing horrible, horrible things. And yeah, it's, it's a mess. But that's not the end of it. You know, we have to, we have to deal with these. We have to face up to them and, and recognize that it's difficult. And part of what I hate about Twitter is that nuance is always lost. You know, even when they doubled the character count to 280, nuance is still lost. And even in long tweet threads, um, and people, I think people are trying to bring it back and trying to show different sides of an issue, but, this isn't an easy answer, you know. On the one hand, you do want people to be able to tell their own stories and people who have historically not gotten publishing contracts to be able to tell their own stories. But do you require a test to prove that they match what they're writing about? And then people have horribly abused own voices using just bizarre things to to try to claim own voices. And that is obviously not what it was intended for. But like anything else, things that, that begin with good intentions get twisted and used and used against the people who they were meant to benefit all the time. And yeah, and that's why I am just a proponent of everybody write what you want to write. And if someone questions you about it, say it's none of your business. <laughs> if I write queer characters, it's none of your business if I'm, if I'm queer or not. And that might not be a good answer for some people, but the author has the right to state that. I don't think anyone should be to be forced to to um, submit to the masses, to the invasion of privacy, even if it's well intentioned, meant to protect um, 
to protect other people? The right answer to many questions is, it's none of your business. And if people would realize that often it's none of their business, I think that the world would be a better place. Uh, And if people would mind their own business, I think that the world would be a better place. But uh, I can't deny at the same time that, you know, people are nosy because they're trying to help other people and not realizing that that help could be harmful. And now we're seeing that, you know, the... uh, the end result of that. But like I said, no good answers. Two other things I wanted to mention really quickly. There is a newsletter by author Kwame Ambalia called Black by Popular Demand, where he's doing a weekly listing of Black book releases. Uh, It's kwameambalia.substack.com, and I will link to it in the show notes. I think it's a great effort on his part. um, So check that out if you would like a... It's across genres, across age groups. um, So yes. He's doing good work there. And the software Plotter uh, is raising its prices. I signed up as an affiliate because I do really enjoy that software. It has a lot of things that I don't love, but ultimately, I I like using it for doing my outlines. Um, I'm keeping all of my character information and setting the information in it. And it's Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R. So if you are interested in trying out Plotter with my affiliate code, that's in the show notes as well. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been using it on, on the book I'm writing and the book I'm starting to write and getting into the groove with it, learning my way around the limitations. And they're always updating. There's like an update every couple of weeks with, you know, bug fixes, which is every software, but like new features. And there's a really lively Facebook group uh, where they talk about features and how to use it. And they're doing a lot of education stuff there. So if you're interested in checking out the software plotter for outlining, um, There's different plotting systems in there. I do recommend it. I'm an affiliate. Use the link if you would like to. So that is it for me for this week. Uh, I hope that you have a wonderful week. Spring is almost here. It's getting warm. I'm very excited about that. For episode show notes and to sign up for the footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really appreciate a rating and review to help support the show. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts.